Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. With me today, I have a special guest. As you can tell, I'm a little bit on the sombre side because my guest today is Marco Levine. She is a Holocaust survivor and she has written a book called A Mother's Courage, How I Survived the Holocaust, A Remarkable Story of Bravery, Kindness and Hope. Marka, I think we should just begin straight away with the questions. Can you tell us a little bit about your family, where you grew up, just a little bit of background about yourself? Well, I, I grew up in um, uh, Ukraine, in Western Ukraine, uh, Northwest Ukraine, which was a border town, which was very influenced by uh, Poland because that it was so close to Poland and we were also occupied by the Poles actually up to 1939 we were until the Russians came in and um, my father had um, a shop uh, a bicycle shop and he had also built a a factory he was a very um, uh, it, it was very good when it came to engineering. And we had sort of a middle-class um, home. And my mother, in actual fact, came from a village just outside the town, uh, a village called Litovich. My grandfather was a dealer in wheat. And my mother also became, once she married, she also went into partnership with him. And we were just a Jewish middle-class a family. My brothers went to private school. I was too small. In actual fact, I was born 1939, just when war broke out. Yeah. The question: How old were your brothers when the war broke out? Because you said there was. Uh, uh, in 1939, um, my brother would be the the older one would be seven, and the younger one five in 1930. So our listeners know, obviously, that the Germans invade Poland on the 1st of September. And then, obviously, the 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 17th. The Soviets are then invaded 17 days later. But you don't end up at the beginning under German occupation. You end up under Soviet occupation. Yeah. Uh, well, the, um, you know, Eastern Europe uh, was petitioned when they Hitler and uh, Molotov had the infamous agreement that they wouldn't attack each each other once they declared war on any uh, country. Uh, So in 1939, the Russians came in. For us, in fact, you love, it was really a liberation to get rid of the Poles because the Poles weren't very egalitarian, as you well know. And things have changed. The Poles have left and uh, some of the Jewish people could take... uh, sort of uh, positions in government offices and such. And it was um, a feeling of um, independence in in a way. And uh, then in um, 1941, 
when Hitler uh, declared Barbarossa, and in June uh, they ca- the Germans came in. Yeah. Before and we, we get were... to that, before, just before we get to that subject, can yeah. you tell me a little about a bit about what happened to your family when the Soviets came in? Did your father manage to keep his shop? No, no. When the when the Russians came in, you know, it, it was only in the beginning. You know, they didn't have uh, enough time to to make any changes. And I think Ludmila or Vladimir Volinsk, yeah, or Vladimir Volinsk in Polish, Vladimir. Um, it was small fry for them. Uh, so there weren't a lot of changes. Maybe one or two sort of. Um, um, because it was very much against Zionism, Stalin. So maybe one or two were sent to the gulags or were eliminated or whatever. But in fact, it was a, a good time for the Jewish people between 39 and 41. You also ended up having quite a lot of people come to your town from... Yeah, in 41, side, that's when it was a very difficult time because there was... Uh, a big uh, influx of Jewish people from Poland because um, when the Germans came in uh, to Poland in, in September 39, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, they really were very, very worried and they had a very good reason to be worried and they started to come to the East because they thought that they would be safe in uh, uh, Eastern Europe in, uh, in the Ukraine, because um, they, we were under the Russian um, government, and they had this piece of paper that they wouldn't um, um, sort of go to war against each other. So the people thought that if they come un- uh, to the to Ludmir, they will be safe because they were under Russia. And in actual fact, there were so many people that the population practically doubled. And uh, obviously it was very difficult, you know, new immigrants come in and so on, and they didn't have the infrastructure and they didn't have where to house them. But in actual fact, at the end of the day, you know, we say from bitter came out sweet, that a lot of these people survived the war because they finished up in Russia. Although in Siberia, obviously in the labor camps, it wasn't, uh, they didn't lick any any honey, you know, it wasn't a fantastic time for them, but at least it wasn't sort of a systematic uh, killing, so to speak. It wasn't a direct form of extermination. A lot of the Jewish people that survived were the ones from Russia. Yeah, it wasn't a form of- But we, we stayed on like idiots. Sorry, uh, it's 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 very interesting because you basically give the argument that I always give that it wasn't direct extermination in the gulags. It was a form of extermination, but it was a yeah, very of slow course, form. because I mean they worked them to death. They worked them to death, but still, yeah, and the weather. Like, it wasn't like let's shove them all into a gas chamber. Yeah, like yeah, they were yeah, doing yeah, un- yeah. Under the under the Germans. Yeah, yeah. So, well, there weren't any uh, crematoriums, I don't think. No, no, no. But let's let's move on a little bit to the invasion of the Germans. So our listeners know Soviet Union is invaded by Germany in June 1941. What changes for you? Under the Germans? Yes. Well, they came in in 1941, in June 22nd of 
when they declared Barbarossa, basically, they came in and the town was blitzed by um, Goering's planes. But um, uh, it, it still sort of existed, you know, we sort of, nobody visualized what was going to happen. I mean, in your wildest dream, right? nobody could have dreamt up anything like that. Um, so they came in and um, things became difficult, obviously, as you can imagine. And then in 1942, we were forced to get into the ghetto. And um, we had to leave our home. We have we had to leave everything behind. And we had no contacts with people of, uh, because we had to give up radios and telephones and so on because uh, obviously they didn't want that people would be connected and to know what is happening and so on. And we went into the ghetto to a very small house. Yeah. And um, then in the middle of, um, that was in 42, in early 42. Yeah. And then they had the Wednesday conference in the, yeah. And in the Wednesday conference, then they, they decided uh, about the Heydrich and Himmler. And then um, when, um, so obviously everything was working according to plan, you, you know, it was according to Germanic precision. And they came in and we were in the ghetto and 25,000 Jews in the first pogrom, can we they stick, killed. Can we stick to mm-hmm. the subject of this? Because you, you eventually moved to a small ghetto. But before you move to the no, small the big ghetto, ghetto. No, yes. We, we... So with this big ghetto, what do you remember of life in this big ghetto? You said you whatever had... I should tell you, I don't really remember because I was very small, so it, it would be just in my imagination. But obviously, things were very people were scared; they didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, the insecurity suddenly you. You you lost everything. You lost your livelihood. You lost your home. You 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 started to talk about the pogrom because this pogrom is really important in your family history, isn't it? Yeah. What t- can you tell us? What happened in this pogrom and why did it affect your family so deeply? What happened in the pogrom? Because we were um, the whole family. We were in the sort of sitting and eating uh, lunch in the middle. Um, and um, the Germans came in uh, with Poles and Ukrainian into the ghetto and starting to round up people. And uh, some people had uh, shelters. We didn't have a shelter because my dad didn't believe that it can happen. And because he spoke German very well and he had German friends and so on, he just didn't visualize that it's such a catastrophe and he said it was just a passing time and things were sort out and we'd go back to our normal sort of life. And um, we didn't have a shelter. And the other thing, my father also had a Fachhausweis. A Fachhausweis is a work permit, you know, because people that were qualified, they would give them a work permit. So he thought that was a work, that was a, a permit for to for life, you know, to live. So we didn't have anywhere where to go. and But my mother was a quick thinker. So what happened, because the house that we 
the ghetto, the ghetto house was standing on stilts. And we thought, so my mother grabbed quickly um, a loaf of bread, um, some honey and some water. And there was a trap door to go down beneath the the floor, the floorboards. So we went down there and we were lying there. And I would say it was probably about a foot, maybe a little bit more, the height between the ground and the and the floor. And we were lying there. And while we were lying there, uh, we could see the Germans walking all around the Ukraines and the Poles, you know, they were rounding up people. And we could see them because the place uh, between the, the stilts, uh, there were sort of pieces of corrugated iron that was, uh, but we could see uh, through the gaps um, the hems of the German officers, we could see the boots and the, the bottom of the hems and so on. And they were walking around with the shepherd's dog, you know, German shepherds to find out, you know, to sniff out Jewish people. And honestly, I, I just can't believe it. The dogs didn't sniff us out. We were right there. But that, that was a mad time where I think animals had more compassion for mankind than people themselves. And we were lying there for three days. On the third day, my, because we ran out of food and water, we didn't have anything. So my, and there was a bit of a lull of the shooting. It was a little bit quiet. So my dad decided to go up and to, forge, to, to, to look for something to bring back for us to eat and some water from the house. And he went up and then he came back and he threw in uh, a loaf of bread and some honey and uh, it, it, there was a sort of a trap door you know so he kept the trap door open and he was talking to my mother and she asked him what's happening and uh, what's it all? And, it, and suddenly the trap door was shut but just before he shut it he, he told my mother Save the children. These were his last words. And that was the last we saw of our dad. And we were lying there for 15 days. And uh, my uh, paternal grandmother was with us as well. So my paternal grandmother lost her son. My mother widowed with a second. And we three children lost our father. And we were lying there for... 15 days, but obviously we needed some food, we needed something. So during the night, my mother would call out when it was a little bit quiet late at night, because she knew some of the fields, and some of the fields actually belonged to her, because, you know, my mother dealt in uh, uh, wheat and then other things. And it, and then she would bring back a beet or uh, an onion or a potato, or a potato and sometimes tomato, and obviously at night she couldn't see if the tomatoes were ripe and she would bring some green tomatoes. That's up to this very day, I prefer green tomatoes. I never knew that tomatoes were supposed to be red. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing the things that children remember. Yeah, that 
Funny, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, when I read your book, I remembered the last words of your dad, save the children. It becomes really important yeah. later in, in your story, doesn't it? Mm. There's, there's literally his last words. But he's we'll my hero. My dad is my hero because he could have lived if he, because he heard from the distance that somebody was coming. But he could have sort of lowered himself. But he thought just in case that somebody has seen him. So he put his, his own, and then my, uh, he just was taken away. Yeah, he's a hero. He he died so we believe. Your mum becomes very strong because of this. And I think I think I found one of my new heroines after reading what your mum does. I mean, she's, a, she's an incredible woman. She's so ballsy and so strong that yeah well, you have to you know you have three children i mean this is a mother yeah she took it to heart i, I would he do said. the same for my children i suppose i hope it would never come to it but i would i suppose so would you because then when things take over yeah but probably she was she was stronger than most people yeah because um she lived and the others didn't so there must have been something stronger in that. Why only nine children survive? So your your father gets killed, obviously, in the first pogrom, and then you end up in a smaller ghetto. Yeah, the, the second ghetto. That was the after fifteen thousand were killed in that first pogrom, and because my dad died and we didn't have any protection anymore because he went down with a blue uh, work permit. So we couldn't go to the ghetto of the living. We went to the ghetto of the dead. And they, the dead, the, uh, the people that lived in the living uh, ghetto, they were useful because they could go to work for them, the Germans. And there were very, very few children left. I think we probably were, because they saw children, uh, the Germans, as uh, probably the new generation will grow up and maybe they'd be a bit stronger than the other lot. Yeah. And then something really... She didn't have a work permit, yeah. So we before we started recording, we started talking a little bit, and you mentioned the people that had saved you. And in your story, there is a very unlikely person that saved you. And that was a high-ranking officer of the Wehrmacht. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about him and what happened there? Yeah, in actual fact, my mother was twice saved by Wehrmacht. First, by, she was caught out of, out of the ghetto by uh, a Polish uh, policeman. One of the a young boy... Uh, Polish or Ukrainian, you know, dependent, um, recognized my brother because my mother was out of the ghetto with my big brother, Chaim, and they were walking uh, because she was taking Chaim to Stacha, Stasha. <laughs> we call her Stacha, you would call her Stasha, to, uh, to Stasha, who was my mother's dressmaker. Um, and a, a boy recognized my brother and he ran into Polish policemen and said, look, there's a Jewish woman with her son walking here and they shouldn't walk uh, in the outside the ghetto. So that Polish um, policeman came out 
And he started to shout to my mother to come back. And mother didn't, you know, she increased her, her walking pace. And uh, then he said, look, if you're not coming, and he started to whistle. And he said, if you're not coming back, I'm going to shoot. You might just as well come back. So she told Chaim to run to Stasha, Stacha. <laughs> she was probably Stacha. And, uh, and she went back. And he took her into orchard where, and he was just loading his gun. And he was going to shoot her. And a, an old German officer happened to pass and he saw what was happening and saw the scenario. And he said, what are you doing? He said, well, she's Jewish. She's not supposed to be in town. So he, he said to him, you know what? You really, you should leave the shooting to the Germans. And then he hit her quite badly with the with his gun over her head, and she suffered from headaches for quite a while. And so she was saved. Uh, the the Wehrmacht were quite a different lot to the Waffen-SS, or the uh, you know the, the ones uh, that were carrying out the shooting, and uh, they were a bit different because they were ordinary soldiers. They didn't want to be really in the war. They didn't want to go to turn to Minsmith in uh, Stalingrad or Kursk or anywhere. They didn't want to, obviously. And they just came out from the First World War, what happened to them in the First World War. So they knew what uh, was waiting for them. And the second, um, yeah, that was in the second program where we were standing to be shot in the Wehrmacht. My uncle, uh, he was the only one, I think, that survived at the time the second program in the prison yard. Um, and he worked in some factory and he got quite pally with this the officer, the Wehrmacht officer that was in charge. His family were killed already. And he told them, you know, my wife and children pretended are going to be taken to Putin to be shot. So he came in the last minute practically and he took us out. But it was very lucky because the Gebit Commissar, the, the Commissar Westerweide who was in charge of our ghetto, either he went for lunch or he disappeared somewhere. Because if he, and he was assessed, and the SS had the power over the Wehrmacht, as you know. So if he would have been there at that particular moment, I wouldn't be talking to you now. And I wouldn't be having a glass of water. <laughs> it's uh, Eric Koch that was in the area with his sadistic well, he girlfriend. Was, he was the most horrible, horrible, because he was there uh, all over the whole. And he was saying, you know, if ever happened that um, a Ukrainian would uh, sit at a table and having a, a dinner at the same table as he was sitting and having, he would have him shot. Quite a price to pay for a plate of uh, sausage and uh, sauerkraut. He was dreadful. I yeah, he saw me. He came to the ghetto. In actual fact, he saw me. Ah, yes. I remember in your book, you were standing on a bookshelf. Book, was it a bookshelf or a cupboard? I was hidden. Yeah, because we knew when Koch came, uh, my brothers weren't there because my mother's... Uh, uh, took them out to Stacha during the night because when Koch came, we knew things are not going to be happy. 
Um, and but Sacha wouldn't have me. She would have the boys, but because she said I was too small, and I might cry, and I might, and it's going to be dangerous for the boys and dangerous for her as well. Um, so she wouldn't have it, which is understandable, obviously. And my mother um, put there was a cupboard, and they put me on top of the hid me on top of the cupboard. But what they didn't realize, and we had a little sort of uh, window. But what we didn't realize, that was the ride, Anna Alfata and Eric Korbeck, they came on uh, riding on horseback. So they were quite high up. So when they were so high up, they could see me. And he asked, uh, Rider, what is she doing there? But by the time, uh, oh, Westerheide said, well, we sorted out. But by the time Westerheide came back, my mother took me out. She smuggled me out of the ghetto through the barbed wire. And, oh gosh, there was another incident that has blown my mind. Ah, that was because you mentioned that you uh, were so small you could have cried. There was another incident where this happened quite a lot in some of the stories where you hear about people having to hide and their children crying and they ended yeah. up being smothered yeah. and killed. And that almost that almost happened to you, didn't it? Yeah, it did happen, yeah. Uh, obviously, mothers would have their children, <clears throat> feeding their children, and they would put a cushion to sort of to uh, dampen their, their cries so they wouldn't hear them crying. But at times, it wasn't quite so. They used the cushion in different, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't end up staying in the ghetto. You escape. How do you manage, the four of you, to escape the ghetto? How does this happen? I wish I could. That, you know, the great escape. Literally. I wish I knew. Uh, I would have loved to have been older to know how we escaped. I think this is one of the pictures that I would love to, I would have loved to remember. It would have been quite fun <laughs> in the snow because it was December and very cold, you know, the Ukrainian winters. Yeah, yeah, that, that could have been quite um, courageous. Yeah, there but was a child, with three children. You were a child, so you had a completely different perspective of escaping the snow and the situation than, for example, your mother where she knew what the dangers were, but to you, you were so small, it could have almost been a game. Yeah, I suppose it was. Yeah, no, quite. I don't think I laughed. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I am um, one of my favourite people on this earth. She escaped the Warsaw Ghetto with her family. And she remembers this one moment where they were on a boat sailing up the river Viswa to get away from Warsaw. Uh, yeah, I can't remember what she was on. A, she was on a river basically trying to get away. And she said to me, because this is what's triggered it, you said about laughing. Her and her sister began to play on the boat and began to laugh. And her mother got so angry with her for smiling and laughing and playing. And it was like, no, this is a serious time. Stop smiling. There was no smiling. There was no laughing. There was no playing. End of. And that's what that kind of triggered that memory of when she told me that. It's a very potent memory she had, actually. Yeah. My mother used quite a bit of, uh, she had quite a, a sort of a lot of irony in her, in her jokes. 
not jokes, humor, should I say. It's different between a joke and humor. So you end up escaping, you get out of the ghetto, and you end up staying with uh, the Yamichooks, don't you? Yeah. So what was life like there? Where were you staying? <laughs> Where did you live? And how did you do well, that? When we came to the Yamichooks, we originally we were meant to be in the house. Uh, and we were supposed to, most of the time, uh, up uh, in the rafters. But the third day, I think, we were sitting and having some food that Mrs. Yakimchuk uh, gave us. We were sitting on the floor and eating, and suddenly there was uh, a knock on the door. And Mrs. Yakimchuk made a sign to her husband to go and open the door. And he made a sign to his son, Ivan, to usher us into the barn to see who, who came. And we were sitting in the barn wait, waiting uh, who, were the, who came. And a few hours later... Uh, Mr. Yakimchu came and he said, I'm very sorry, but you have to leave. I can't keep you because my my home has been commandeered by the Germans. And they, in actual fact, they um, created sort of a hub for training Ukrainian people to work with the with the Germans against the Russians. Yeah. And there were the, <laughs> we couldn't go back to the house. So Mrs. Yakimchuk uh, suggested that uh, they dig out a pit in the barn and that became our abode for the next nine months. How big was this pit that literally... It wasn't huge. It, it, it wasn't a manor. <laughs> it, it was... Uh, uh, how, was how big was it? Honestly, it probably be about two and a half metres by a metre and a half. They're about... And uh, it wasn't, it was quite shallow. I could stand up, but my mother couldn't. She constantly was on her knees. And my bigger brother probably couldn't stand there. No, I, I was the one who stood up. Yeah. Your mum, she used to stretch her legs by sitting on the edge of the pit, didn't she? Sorry? Your mum would stretch her legs when she'd sit on the side of the pit. Uh, that was already towards when uh, it got to be later. That was sort of April time or thereabout, and things were getting a bit warmer. And um, she would sit at the edge of the... Because life for, for her was terrible. I mean, looking after three... Keep, to try and keep three children in check. And, yeah, it was very difficult. But her only uh, her own time was when she would sit at the edge of the pit, and her legs were sort of uh, ready to jump in in case if she heard somebody coming, and listening to the um, um, to the folks cocking. That's the music that she had. Yeah, that sort of that was her her pastime. How did she end up entertaining, because you were all different ages, how did she end yeah. up entertaining all of you in literally well, a two-metre pit? 
there are children involved. You can't sort of compare. They, they, they grow up very fast. They think differently. They, um, um, it comes, it can come out in a child the best and the worst. Yeah. And I really like the way you talk about your family in this. It's very interesting, especially when you talk about your brother, how it was you got on with your older brother, but your younger brother was... The middle brother. Yeah. No, my, my older brother, Chaim, he is the kindest, the best person you could wish to meet and the least selfish and my middle brother, I think it's a middle child syndrome, and it came out even then. Yeah. Tell us about him. Why did he have middle child syndrome? He Why was, didn't yeah, like my middle brother, obviously, he was older. But by that time, I was five, really, I can show, because I came out, I was nearly six. So, and my, and my bigger brother was 12. But he had the head of somebody twenties, you know. He was thinking, you know. He and he was very, very supportive, very, very supportive. My middle brother, very, very clever, too clever. I mean, intellectually, he was very, very clever. And my mother had to be very careful with him because we thought that he was losing his mind. Because I think I write about it actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You actually end up back in the house at some point as well, don't you? How? Why? Ah, uh, yeah, because in the in the barn, uh, because Mister Yakimchuk had to give up the cow shed, uh, he gave it to the Germans, and um, so he had to take out his horse that was in the cow shed and to bring it in into the barn. And he he was tied up with a very flimsy rope. And one day he decided to escape because he was prisoner number five, in fact. We were four prisoners. <laughs> and he wanted to escape. And he managed to break the the rope and he jumped on our pit. And the pit was demolished. And our poor home was demolished. And we were covered in, uh, yeah, well, we were quite badly hurt and so a horse jumps on you. Yeah. And then um, during the night, we had to, there was no other way. We went uh, into, the, we were lucky because at that time already, uh, the Germans were preparing for the fight on Kovo. Kovo was a very important strategic point between the East and the West, you see. Um, and they were sort of, um, preparing all the armament and so on. And maybe it happened a day when they weren't there and we and we at night we escaped into the house. But why we escaped a young boy he, uh, Simon, the boy he was about eight or nine, I don't know. Exactly. He saw us and that was so dangerous. And we spent some time, a couple a few days uh, in the rafters again. And then um, Ivan, the son, uh, rebuilt the pit, and we went back to our 
yeah, below the cell back into the pit. But before you end up back in the pit, yeah, something happens that kind of it kind of sours the relationship a little. Oh bit, yes, 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 yes. Because what happened? <laughs> Uh, now you're laughing because when we were in, in the raft, there was a lot of hay there. Uh, because Mr. Yakimchuk was a farmer, so and he was <laughs> he wrapped up some apples and pears in the uh, in whatever, and then he hid them in the hay cell to ripen for the summer. You see, because that wasn't the winter. <laughs> and my brothers discovered the apples in the pan, and they did help themselves, I must say. And my mother kept saying, You mustn't touch them, you mustn't touch them because we will be out. If Mr. Yakimchu will find out that you're helping yourself to his apples and pears, you, we will be out. But anyway, but one or two apples and so on. But the point is because, and <laughs> Mr. Yakimchuk's house wasn't very robust. You know, and obviously the ceiling was sort of jerry-built and it was timber. And you just had to make one, um, just to walk on it or, so, or move or whatever. It would make uh, a noise. And one, I think it was a Sunday in the Yakinchuk had some family that came uh, to see them. And we... And they kept on saying, what's happening up there? What do you mean? And he kept on, he bought out barrels of his samagon. You know, it is sort of like vodka, but far more potent. And he kept filling the glasses and he went, oh, Nasarovia, Nasarovia. And um, they wanted to climb up and to have a look. They said, you know, there's something dangerous going up there. And they wanted to go up. And somehow he made them so drunk. And the other thing is there were some children there. So the Yakinchuks normally liked a very quiet time because their daughter was very ill. Pascha was very ill. And they made them sing and scream and uh, jump just to make for them to forget what's happening up there. And eventually, late at night, they left drunk. And I mean drunk, because Mr. Yenchuk was very, very uh, generous with his summer gone. And then, then Mrs. Yenchuk came up to the, uh, yeah, and she said, look, guys, what the hell have you been doing here? And we didn't do anything, you know, ju- if you just move, you know, you could hear. And he said, you know, these people kept on asking who is there? What's happening? They want. They grabbed the ladder. They wanted to go up because they were worried about Yakimchuk. Somebody came in to the rafters. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Mister Yakimchuk got rid of an awful lot of his brew. I, I called it Chateau Le Pit. <laughs> Chateau Le Pit. Chateau Le Pit. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and. Um, uh, and yes, that sought uh, our relationship quite badly. And they followed, and it wasn't enough. But as we went up uh, into the rafter, uh, 
Simon, Mr. Yakimchuk's uh, nephew, that saw us. He went to Yakimchuk and said, you know, uh, that was his uncle. You know, uncle, you're keeping Jews. And he said, who told you? He says, I've seen them with my own eyes. So Mr. Yakimchuk really laid into him and he said, you mustn't tell anybody. And the most important thing is don't tell your mother because your mother is the biggest gossip in the, in the whole village. So the boy kept his um, the secret. They took him to the priest and they made him swear in front of the priest that he would never tell anybody, and he never did. In actual fact, when I went back, Simon was still alive, and we went to see oh. Simon. In actual fact, he's in the book. There's a picture of him. Yeah, I love it. We'll we'll come back to you coming back to Ukraine um, at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. before we get then, then, that would start the relationship. But then, the, but you know, they had to get over the the anger. And the following day, that was funny. All these revelers, they came back the following day, and they still asked Mister Yakimchuk, "What was that noise?" So I said, "What do you mean that noise? You you drank all my." My brew and you complaining, you you know the the noise was in your head, not. It's smart. It's a smart way to do oh, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But your mum, I'm going to come back to her because she, like I said, I think she was amazing for what she managed to do. But she also at this time, especially over the winter, she gets really ill, doesn't she? She was, because there was a time that when the Germans were all around us, because we could hear the Germans, they were in the cow shed and we were in the in the barn. And all there was, there was a wall that made sort of, um, with cl- you know, clunks that fitted not very well. To, and then we could hear exactly. And we could, sometimes my brothers even looked through because they were very inquisitive. So they looked through, they saw the German, so preparing them, their ammunition. And then um, we saw them uh, swearing and singing and so on. And um, and that was a difficult time for the Akimchuks to come because the Germans were all over. And we didn't have any water. So my mother called out and she bought some ice and, we, and then she ate the ice. We too, the children, nothing happened to us. But mom was very ill. Yeah, very ill. And in actual fact, it left her with a bad chest for the rest of her life. She it was a real uh, asthma sufferer. When your mum sees the doctor post-war... This yeah, is Dr about, Levy. Yeah, they said, the doctor said, if they'd have treated it straight away... I think this is... I remember this, right? If they treated your mother straight away, then she would have Not been Not my killed. mother. It wasn't my mother. It was Paraska. Okay. Because my mother promised them that once we will um, li- be liberated, she'll make sure that Paraska would have the best um, doctor. Um, because we didn't know yet the Dr. Levitt or any doctor, but luckily Dr. Levitt survived and he looked after Paraska. So she lived for a few more years, but then eventually she died. And my mother paid for her antibiotics and uh, the medication, doctors and everything. She... I think we could never repay the Yakimchuks. Let's not kid ourselves. We could never repay them, that's for sure, because they put their head on the block for us. Yeah, so um, Paraska got better, but she she went 
too far. Yeah. And um, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about liberation because you get liberated uh, a lot sooner, actually, than than most the, of the luck. The luck, if you can call it luck, we were liberated very early. We were liberated in forty June forty uh, July for twenty second of July forty four. And when the war was still going on till 45, and then the Polish uh, people from the camps, uh, they were still um, incarcerated, yeah. So to, what do you remember of the Soviet liberation? I don't remember no flood, but I remember walk, the walk back because Mr. Yakinchuk didn't want to take us back. We had actually to walk back, I don't know how many kilometres, probably about 10 kilometres or 50 kilometres, because he didn't want to be seen that uh, in front of the villages that they kept Jews, which is understandable, because of um, uh, it endangered the whole village, not only the Yakim Chuk, because if we would have been found, the whole village would have been in place. So you finally get home. Yeah. What happens when you get home? Because obviously you have war, you've lost... 90 bleak very very bleak i was gonna say 98% there was no home there was nothing tell us about it because you can't you can't go back to your home yeah just grand zero basically not just that you can't go to your where do you go because your home is occupied your mum no our home was our home was destroyed but my grandfather's uh, home was uh he's a townhouse was still there, and there uh, some other people moved in, and obviously we, we couldn't have it. How long did so you remember Found a little hovel, then we just. And Stasha came. You know, Stasha was in Poland because she didn't want to be under the Russian occupation. She went back to Poland, but when she got to know that we arrived, she came to see us. She was the first one to come, and she bought 200 rubles. And a comb, a special comb to comb our knits. <laughs> How long did you end up staying in Lodmir? Uh, I would say best part of two years. Yeah. And why did you end up leaving? Uh, because my mother wanted to go to the West and she didn't want the children to be... Um, she wanted to go back to some kind of normality and she didn't want to live anymore. Uh, in Ludmill, in for obvious reasons. So tell us, where did you go? In all the, and funnily enough, there the were thirty people that survived. We all left. Everybody left. Yeah. Where did you end up going? Well, we went to to uh, my mother always called it Lemberg to uh, to Lebov. Lviv, what they call now, and then we went to Poland to Bitom. And what happened in Poland uh, was very, very difficult. My mother didn't want it anymore, so we left and we went to um, uh, to Czechoslovakia. And from Czechoslovakia, we went to uh, Austria, to Salzburg, and we were in a DP camp for about. About eight or nine months, and the conditions were terrible. And obviously, the Austrians they didn't look favorably on the Jews because they blamed the Jews for Hitler losing the war. You know that 
Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? And then, and then afterwards, we crossed the Alps to Italy illegally, uh, a whole group of us. And uh, we were in Italy for, again, the best part of two years until 1948, when Israel became independent, we went to Israel. November, 20th of November, 1948. Yeah. Your story is incredible. And I think people should go out and read it because usually the story of a, of a Holocaust survivor is a death camp or a concentration camp. Yeah. There's not so many stories of surviving literally in a two meter pit for months on end. I mean, that still is mind blowing. And I complain yeah. about. I don't know if I was successful to tell you the truth. To, um, to make it a universal story rather than just um, a Holocaust story. I hope I was. I don't know. I think you were because you talk about so many different experiences because, again, the Jews in Poland experienced it different when you were under complete German rule for so long and occupation to, for example, moving between German mm-hmm. and Soviet and then... I like the story. It's very interesting. I think people should be able to read it because it now, shows you know, you asked me a lot of questions. May I ask you something? Of Would course, you, you can ask ask me anything you like. Right. Um, you must have read a lot of um, different. Do you read? Did have you? Read, you must have read Anna Frank. Yes. You must have read the uh, uh, Primo Levi. Of, of that number, yes. <laughs> that was fantastic. He was very, very intelligent. God forbid, not for one single minute do I compare, but no, definitely not, uh, to that I, oh, fantastic writer. Um, but how did you find a mother's courage uh, in comparison to other Holocaust stories? What did you, was it different or was it another Holocaust story? I don't think it's just another Holocaust story. Your story can't get you lost. You don't have to be polite. No, 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 no. I'm being honest. You, it, it's one of those stories that won't... Okay, let me rephrase this differently. When you think of the Holocaust, you think of death camps and concentration camps and incredible suffering and torture and death and murder, and that's what you think of. I'm not saying your story was easy because it wasn't. It was very difficult in a different way, where it shows how you have to survive under difficult conditions. And the courage of your mother just shines through. Like I said before, I love it. Does it come through? It's yes. a sort of more of a uni- sort of a universal story rather than just a Holocaust story. I was yes. trying, but you know, it's very difficult to get away from the horror. But it is, look, it is a Holocaust story, but it's not a Holocaust story. Does that okay, make sense? Okay, that's, that's a compliment. Thank you. And it's, for me, I think you describing the loss of your father, you can actually feel the loss of your father in your words. You feel certain emotions that you've written in the book when reading the words. You feel pain sadness there's hatred of course which is understandable did any of your friends read it not yet because i read it first but i'm going to grab right. myself a copy which everybody else should because we're going to put it in our bookshop because when i re- when i wrote it in actual fact i never thought it it's going to be published i wrote it for just through covid like a lot of uh, 
yeah. But then we sent it to a literary agency and they read it and they said, we would love to do it. We would like your book. And then we had three companies like Pan Macmillan, Welbeck, and Ashet, which Ashet is a huge com- international company, French company, but they bigger than Pan uh, Macmillan. And we had three offers. And I went uh, with Pan Macmillan. Mm-hmm. And then came another offer from um, a Russian uh, publishing house. And I said, uh, no, thank you very much for the offer. But come back once the war is over. Oh, I, I like that. Come back. But it, when the war is, we will speak. And then I had the offer from a Ukrainian publishing house. Malka, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with me here on this podcast. And we'll make sure to get your book in our bookshop for people to be able to get a hold of. I admire your charm. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing you. You too. I absolutely, I loved it. And I think you and I have very similar opinions and I love it. And I love meeting people who have the same kind of pattern of thinking. So anyway, we are honoured to know you. (laughs) Honour is mine, by the way. Honour is mine. Mutual. Mutual. (laughs) Thank you so much, ladies. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.